from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, April 13th. I'm Marco Werman. Protesters test the ceasefire in Syria. This man in Hama says they were met with gunfire. A military checkpoint opened fire on us. Two of my colleagues were killed and 25 were uh, wounded. Also, what North Korea may have gained with that failed rocket launch, plus new technology brings to life Titanic's last Morse code messages. SOS from Titanic. We have struck iceberg, sinking fast, come at once. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. And by WGBH, producer of Lydia Celebrates America, presenting weddings, something borrowed, something new. Lydia cordially invites viewers to be her plus one on this cross-country matrimonial odyssey, Tuesday, April 17th at 8, 7 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The ceasefire in Syria is reportedly holding, but just barely. Both sides in the conflict said there was fresh violence today. The Syrian government said a terrorist had shot and killed an army officer, while opposition activists said government forces had opened fire on protesters, killing four. Opposition activist Musab al-Hamadi says he was part of a demonstration today in Hama, one of the centers of the uprising in Syria. As we were about to enter the square, military checkpoints opened fire on us. Two of my colleagues were killed. Their names are Muhammad Nathan and the other martyr is Ahmed Abu Ayoun. And 25 of my colleagues were uh, wounded. We tried to go to other districts in Hama, but intelligence forces followed us and uh, used sound bombs uh, and tear uh, gas to make people go home. And in Hama, what happened when the shooting started? Did people panic and run? What was the scene like? We are used to shooting. When uh, shooting happened, we tried to stay in our places for some time. But when we found that uh, our uh, friends are falling on the ground in front of our eyes, we withdrew to other places. And we were successful in making big demonstrations because the number of killings uh, this Friday is less than killings in other Fridays. So many would say that this would indicate the ceasefire is not holding. But on the other hand, you just said uh, this is less violence than other Fridays. How, how do you see it? Ceasefire isn't working at all, but the rate of killing is decreasing. For example, instead of 100 martyrs, we have 20 martyrs or 30 martyrs. That is the truth of Mr. Kofi Annan, nothing more than that. Now, uh, the next part of the Kofi Annan peace plan is to get a couple of hundred United Nations observers into Syria. Do you have confidence in what those observers will be able to report on? We don't want monitors to come and watch us while we are dying. We had very bad experience before with Arab monitors, and when they came, killing increased in Syria. 
Do you really think the international community is going to step in to bring guns to the opposition in Syria? Frankly speaking, we feel a little bit frustrated because of what the international community is doing. So we ask uh, all people, we ask Europe, we ask America, we ask our neighbor Turkey and our brothers, Arab brothers, uh, to help us and to stop uh, killing the Syrian people. Musab, given the violence you've seen today in Hama, will you go out and demonstrate tomorrow? Sure, yes. This is our task and this is our revolution. We will not make half revolution. We will keep on demonstrating. Even if Bashar al-Assad kills uh, half the Syrian people, we will keep on demonstrating till we topple this dictatorial regime down. Musab, do you have a, a family? Would you encourage them to go out and demonstrate too? Actually, my wife today was with me in the demonstration in, in Hama. Every Syrian feels determined. We deserve democracy like all people of the earth. Are you concerned that this could evolve into a sectarian civil war in Syria? In Syria, we have coexistence. This coexistence between uh, different ethnic groups is hundreds of years old. Sunnis, Alawites, Druze, uh, Christians, we all are the same family. So uh, the civil war is a propaganda by the regime. Bashar Assad uh, says either he or the flood. Do you accept, though, that those minorities uh, do, in, in fact, fear what might come next with a new regime, if there is a new regime after Assad? Nothing will happen. They will live in better situation. The ruling elite now uh, are from Alawite minority, and our brothers Alawite are the most miserable part of the Syrian population. They are most miserable in the mountain. The regime is only using them in order to make domestic war and civil war in Syria. So they are uh, damaged by this regime more than us. So uh, I think that their situation will get better. The same applies to our Christian brothers in Syria. Every person will have a chance to take a role in building a new Syria. Musab al-Hamadi, thank you very much for speaking with us. You're most welcome. Opposition activist Musab al-Hamadi speaking with us from Hama, Syria. For more of our ongoing coverage of Syria and the latest from our partners at the BBC, go to theworld.org. This time last year, it was the uprising in Libya that was grabbing all the headlines. And one of the most intriguing figures in that uprising has to be Abdel Hakim Belhaj. He's now a senior member of the new Libyan government. During the revolution, he was a rebel leader, helping to drive Muammar Gaddafi out of power last August. Before that, Belhaj spent six years in Gaddafi's prisons, where he says he was tortured. How he wound up there is now the subject of a lawsuit against the British government. In the suit, Belhaj says U.S. and British intelligence agencies had a hand in his detention and exile and subsequent rendition back to Libya. Reporter Ian Cobain says Abdel Hakim Belhaj has a strong case. Cobain writes for Britain's Guardian newspaper and has been following the case closely. Belhaj is one of the leading members of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, which was um, an Islamist organization formed around about 1990 with the aim of overthrowing the Gaddafi regime by force. By 2004, he and his wife, Fatimir Bouchar, were living in exile in the Far East and had asked the British if they could come and seek asylum in the UK. This is as unusual as it may seem because in the 1990s, a great many members of this organisation, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, did indeed live in London and were allowed to settle in the UK. So Belhaj and his wife were seeking asylum in the UK. Your recent account of Belhaj's story in The Guardian begins 
though with a description of what Fatima Bouchard, then four and a half months pregnant, endured during this arrest and detention with her husband. What did happen? Well, they were told that they would be permitted to travel to the UK and were allowed to get onto a British Airways airplane in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, which was going to London. The plane stopped off in Bangkok. And while they were in Bangkok, they say they were detained. I say they say that this is the case, but nobody's really disputing it. They, they were detained in, in Bangkok and after being held there for a few days, were then flown to Tripoli. Bell Hard says that he was tortured while he was in Bangkok. He says he was tortured by Americans in Bangkok. And then when he was flown to Tripoli, he was tortured again by, by Libyans, by Colonel Gaddafi's security services. His wife, who was four and a half months pregnant, say that she spent several days in Bangkok chained to a wall. She wasn't chained upright. She was allowed to sit down, but she mm. says she was chained to a wall. And after around five days, she was taped to a stretcher, taped from head to toe to be put aboard this plane that then flew to Tripoli. Now, if the UK had at one point a favorable view of Bell Hodge, why did this happen? Uh, it's clear that the British were very, very keen to repair relations with the Gaddafi government. There were economic benefits in the British oil companies were able to access that country's oil and gas reserves. Also, of course, Gaddafi dismantled his WND programme. And that is a decision he took following the invasion of Iraq. Now, if you remember in early 2004, the invasion of Iraq wasn't going too well. The insurgency was gathering pace. And it was very useful for those countries that participated in the invasion to be able to point to positive benefits. And one of the positive benefits was being able to turn around the Gaddafi government, ensuring that it no longer had the WMD program, that Western oil companies could get in there and access those reserves. So as part of this process of repairing one's relationship with the Gaddafi government, it seems that these people, Belhaj and his wife, and another family, another man and his wife and four children, who were opponents of Gaddafi, were just handed over as gifts, it seems. Are you saying it was kind of a quid pro quo? It seems that way. It also seems that it had other benefits as well, in that the courts in the UK had recently ruled that the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group had no connection with al-Qaeda. And once Bel Hajj and this other man were detained in Tripoli, they say that they were tortured and were told, look, things will go better for you if you say that your organisation is connected with al-Qaeda. And if the courts were being told that there was evidence that the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group and al-Qaeda were connected, then it meant that more of the group's members in the UK could be detained. So his wife was held in a Libyan jail for practically until the end of her pregnancy and Bel Hajj for six years. Um, how solid is the evidence that all of this did, in fact, take place? The evidence seems pretty solid. In September last year, a researcher with Human Rights Watch found the offices of Musa Kusa, Gaddafi's foreign minister, and before that, for many years, the head of his intelligence organizations. And inside the office, he came across file after file of correspondences and faxes, communications with different intelligence organizations, the CIA and MI6. And the document showed very clearly that the British had provided the intelligence that led to Belhaj and his wife being detained at Bangkok. The head of counterterrorism at MI6 at that time, a man called Mark Ellen, wrote a letter and signed a letter in which he said he congratulated Musa Kusa on the arrival of, the, of his enemy in Tripoli and said, don't forget that the intelligence that allowed you to grab him came from us. So whatever he says, we want to hear about it. Now, that's, that's a smoking gun, which couldn't be clear, really. The evidence is there. And that's the reason why 
in our dealings with the British government, the Guardian's been told by individuals who speak on the condition of anonymity that, that they make it quite clear, yes, it's, essentially this is true, this is what we did, and this is what we were asked to do by government ministers. The dispute now is who is responsible, who authorised it, because the Prime Minister of the day, Tony Blair, and his Foreign Secretary, Jack Straw, have both said that they couldn't know everything that MI6 was, was up to. MI6, on the other hand, the head of MI6 at the time, Sir Richard Dearlove, has very publicly said, oh, yes, you did. Everything we did vis-a-vis the Libyans was authorised by government ministers. Tony Blair, incidentally, has slightly changed his position just in the last few days. He's been asked about this again. And instead of implying that MI6 was not under direct ministerial control, what he's said is that he has no recollection of these events. So Fatima Bouchar and Abdel Hakim Belhaj are now suing the British security services. What would it mean for the UK justice system if Belhaj and Bouchar are successful in their lawsuits? I don't think that there's much doubt that they won't be. They will be successful Mm. because they have a wealth of evidence to show that the British government was involved in what happened to them. And the British government's going to have to settle this. They're going to have to settle out of court if they can. It will cost an awful lot of money. Um, The British government's facing dozens of similar claims at the moment. A a number of men who were detained in Guantanamo for a number of years Mm. and questioned by British officials whilst in Guantanamo have already successfully sued the British government. The British government paid out um, millions of pounds already. The current government is proposing a change in the law to ensure that a future litigation brought by victims of rendition can be heard only in secret so that the press and the public can't get into court and find out the details of what happens when these allegations face judicial scrutiny. Also, of course, there's a criminal investigation underway. Scotland Yard is currently investigating what happened to Belhaj and his wife with a view to bringing criminal charges. So it's not just a civil matter. There's also the possibility of there being criminal proceedings arising out of this. The Guardian newspaper's Ian Cobain in London. He's been writing about the case of Abdel Hakim Belhaj and his wife, Fatima Bouchard. Ian, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Still to come, a bit of Vietnam comes to a remote part of the Wild West on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama left Washington today on his way to Cartagena, Colombia. He'll be there this weekend for the Summit of the Americas. It's a gathering of all the heads of state in the Western Hemisphere. Well, almost all. Cuba doesn't go to these summits, and that's actually one of the big topics at this year's gathering. Reporter John Otis joins us from Bogota, Colombia. John, it seems earlier that Cuba might go to this meeting in Cartagena, but in the end it's not happening. What did happen? Well, Marco, what happened is that uh, some of the left-leaning governments in Latin America said they were going to boycott uh, this Summit of the Americas because Cuba had not been invited. Cuba hasn't attended any of the Summit of the Americas, which started back in 1994, back in Miami. 
because Cuba is not a democracy. Uh, however, um, Hugo Chavez, Daniel Ortega, uh, Rafael Correa of Ecuador, uh, these presidents all wanted Cuba to come and said that they wouldn't attend unless Cuba was invited. Uh, that would have been a huge embarrassment for Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos. So he traveled to Cuba, spoke with President Raul Castro, convinced him not to press his desire to attend. In exchange, Santos said he'd push to see if Cuba could be invited to future summits. Now, uh, Felipe Calderón, uh, the Mexican president, was just in Cuba, and he spoke out against the U.S. embargo, against the, the communist government there. Is this all going to come up at the summit as well? And if so, what the what what is the U.S. response going to be? This will probably be a, more of a back uh, hallways debate, and the U.S. response is probably going to be more of the same, that we're going to keep the, keep the embargo going. It's an election year, and uh, President Obama doesn't want to take too many risks. Mm. So if uh, Colombian President Santos's trip to, to Havana was aimed at defusing the Cuba issue, it didn't really seem to work, as now it is a kind of a, at least a minor deal. But there's another big topic at, at the summit, and that's uh, the fight against illegal drug trafficking. Uh, some people in Latin America are calling for a different approach. What, what is that? That's correct, Marco. Um, Latin American leaders more and more are seeing the drug war as being a huge failure and a very violent failure. There have been 40,000 drug-related deaths in Mexico since President Felipe Calderón took over in 2006. Uh, Guatemala's new president, uh, interestingly, uh, who is a, a former military general, President Otto Perez, has come out and said, no, we need an alternative to the just say no, the hardline drug war uh, policies, because all of these countries are really, you know, paying in blood for what's going on. And Central America is being uh, slowly taken over by drug gangs. So they're really at their wits end and they want to try to come up with a new policy or at least kick off a debate. Um, What kind of drugs actually is the Guatemalan president uh, proposing to legalize? Well, he's not proposing that we're going to legalize. He's saying we need to open a debate about decriminalization. And decriminalization is more along the lines of not throwing everyone in jail for smoking marijuana, that sort of thing. Starting to take these initial steps because just like with free trade accords, you need an international consensus on how to deal with drug policy. So, John, do you think there will be a lot of discussion about this at the summit, or is it another kind of backroom deal? It's getting a lot of attention in the press, but it's going to be more of a back hallway sort of a discussion. Um, however, the, the press attention is very important because that's helping to drive uh, the issue in the media and among pundits and so forth. And there, there really is a big debate opening up across Latin America. And I think in future summits, we're going to see much more debate about this. And this issue is not going to go away. It's, it's just getting bigger. Reporter John Otis in Bogota, Colombia, telling us about the Summit of the Americas. Thank you very much, John. Thanks a lot, Marco. Few places in the Americas have suffered more from drug-related violence than Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. At the peak of the violence, there were more than 3,000 murders a year in Juarez. The murder rate has dropped a bit, but Juarez is still considered one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Reporter Monica Ortiz Uribe lives and works across the border from Juarez in El Paso, Texas. She's been crossing that border and reporting on Juarez for the past four years. And Monica, who works for the public radio collaboration Fronteras, also happens to be with us in our Boston studios this week. So a couple of years ago, 2009, 2010, that was really kind of the worst in terms of violence in Juarez, Monica. A few weeks ago, you reported on a story that indicated people in Juarez are starting to go out again, almost to take back the night 
not to mention the day. So what is it like in Juarez these days? Has the violence, in fact, calmed down? Yes, it has calmed down. And really, on its outer shell, Juarez is like any normal, bustling border city. I mean, there's tons of traffic on the international bridges. Same goes for the streets. People are out on their way to take their kids to school, to go to work, at the supermarkets. A couple of years ago, when the city was reached its peak violence. The one indication that something was off in the city were the convoys of federal police and military. And those are, for the most part, gone now. And really, now the change in the city happens to be that people are beginning to come out of their homes and they're starting to go out late at night and all these clubs have turned up right near the border. There has been a shift over the past few years. And when you go down there yourself now, Monica, do you feel safe? Oh, that's a very, (laughs) that's a tricky question because it's very easy to get comfortable when you go every day. And so far, I haven't been myself a a victim of any kind of violence or, or even a witness to any kind of severe extreme violence. Of course, I've heard about it through my interviews. And so, no, I don't try to take my safety for granted. And for our listeners who don't know the geography, orient us. Where exactly is Juarez in relation to the border? Is it right on the border? Like yeah, I mean, from my, from my home office in El Paso, I can, I can look out the window and see the giant Mexican flag waving in the distance. It takes me about five minutes to, to cross into Juarez. So we're right on top of each other. How close to the border does the violence sometimes come? <laughs> well, close enough that a bullet can reach City Hall in El Paso. Really? And that's, Has that's, that happened? <laughs> Yes, yes, that has. That was one of three incidents. The first bullet hit City Hall. I think it ended up uh, striking a, a picture frame. Mm. The second one hit on a Saturday afternoon within the, the university. The last one struck a woman in the ankle. I think she was out shopping downtown. So that close. That's amazing. So much horror, so much violence, and so much of it linked to the drug war. But the first stories, as you know, of violence to emerge from Juarez uh, were the disappearances of young women and girls, not necessarily linked to drugs. Is that still going on? Well, actually, initially, there were murders of, of young women and, and girls. And now what we're seeing are disappearances of young women and girls that fit the same profile as those that were murdered years back. Up until recently, no bodies have, have turned up. So really, no one knows what's happening to these girls. Finally, Monica, I want to ask you about something else, Uh, a video that's caused a lot of controversy in Mexico this week. It shows children actors portraying a sort of day in the life of all of Mexico's problems that a lot of adults live through these days, from drug violence and corruption to pollution and immigrants being smuggled across the border. And the tagline from the kids at the end is basically, if this is our future, we don't want it. Have you seen the video and what's your reaction? Yes, yes. I just took the time to watch it this morning. I have to say it was it was striking. As a reporter, of course, I've listened to these problems from the perspectives of people that I interview. So watching it kind of all boiled into four minutes, portrayed by children nonetheless, was very moving. I think it's an important video and it needs to be watched and considered. Monica Ortiz Uribe of the Public Radio Collaboration Fronteras. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that video about Mexico's future ends with a call for change from those kids to Mexico's top politicians. It's really powerful stuff. And you don't need to speak Spanish to see it and understand it. You can find out more and see the video at theworld.org. This is PRI. Hi, 
I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, 100 years after the Titanic went down, new technology lets us listen to the final Morse code messages to and from the ship. CQD, CQD, this is Titanic. Mount Temple to Titanic. What is the matter? Come at once. Have struck a berg. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The U.N. Security Council today called North Korea's attempted rocket launch deplorable. That's because the Security Council viewed the launch as a violation of two resolutions. But you might say it was deplorable for North Korea. The rocket failed and broke up over the Yellow Sea. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing, and Mary Kay, as you tweeted... Friday the 13th proved to be unlucky. But what is North Korea's point of view on this? Is the rocket launch viewed as a failure there? Well, it's hard to know because they're not actually saying how they feel about this. What we know is that they did not broadcast it live, that the foreign journalists who were invited in were the last to know, really. They were informed by their editors. And even when they scrambled to get down to the press room that the North Koreans had set up for them, it was dark. And the big screen that was set up down there, presumably to show the rocket launch, was still dark as well. The North Koreans, interestingly, did issue an announcement that it had tried to launch a satellite into orbit and had failed. This is the first time they have copped to that. There have been three long-range rocket tests in the past, and in the past, North Korea just kind of went silent when they didn't work out. What actually were the aims of North Korea in in launching this rocket? We hear so much about it being tied to a nuclear program, but what was their aim? Well, there were several different audiences for this and probably several different aims. First, North Korea always likes to get attention when it feels that it needs more food aid, when it feels that it wants to have more leverage in negotiations of various types, and it certainly got more attention through this. Mm. Um, There's also the anniversary on Sunday of Kim Il-sung's birth, and there are big festivities, uh, gala celebration around that. Uh, And so this was linked to that, and so it was for a domestic audience. And the other thing is that even with a failure, the North Koreans can learn from it. They can try to perfect their technology, and it also shows potential buyers of that technology elsewhere, what they have and how far along they are in in trying to get it up to speed. So for the North Koreans, not a total failure, even though it didn't go into orbit. There is concern among some Western officials, uh, as you know, that this rocket program is really North Korea trying to ramp up its nuclear program. And this weekend, Western officials from six countries, along with Iranian officials, are meeting to discuss Iran's nuclear program. How do you think North Korea views meetings like that? I mean, surely North Korea is going to come up at that meeting. Well, sure. And North Korea is very happy that it actually has a nuclear weapons program and has a nuclear weapon. North Korea has has already done two nuclear tests in 2006 and 2009. And there are signs that it's preparing for another test. Mm. Some analysts think that uh, the fact that the test today didn't go so well may 
increase the chances that there'll be a nuclear test sometime soon. Um, there have been signs that they've been tunneling near the Chinese border, which is similar behavior to what happened before when there were the other two tests. And some experts believe that North Korea may only need one more test before being able to miniaturize a warhead to fit on a long-range missile that could reach the U.S., although given the results of today's test, maybe it will still take some time before a missile could reach that far. Right. Well, I was just going to throw you a military reality check, Mary Kay. Should we be worried about a North Korean nuclear program if they can't get three rockets into orbit? Well, again, even when there's a failure, you can learn from the failure. So at this moment or for next week or next month, no. But it just depends how good they are at learning. The world's Mary Kay Mag said in Beijing. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. One thing the U.S. might want to worry about is a set of new guidelines issued by Pakistan's parliament yesterday. The guidelines demand an end to American drone strikes against militants inside Pakistan. Those drone strikes have fueled a lot of anti-American sentiment there. And now Pakistan is going ahead with plans to build its own attack drone, as the world's Laura Lynch reports. In the fractious atmosphere of Pakistani politics, where everybody appears to disagree on just about everything... One issue unifies everyone. American drones firing on targets inside Pakistan's borders have sparked anger and indignation. But observers say some in the military are also upset because the U.S. refuses to share its predator drones. Retired General Talat Massoud says that may be understandable from a strategic point of view, but it isn't helping improve relations between the two countries. Well, I think the most insulting part has been the unilateral use of uh, the drones rather than not supplying us with a weapon system. One country has that option of not providing a weapon system to another, but then using that weapon system against an ally then becomes a very, very complex issue. Reports of Pakistan working on producing its own armed drones began to surface in 2009. The most highly touted model is called the Barak, named for a mythical winged creature that's said to have carried the Prophet Muhammad. Masood says the military is working hard on it, but there's still no guarantee it will be flying anytime soon. I think uh, they are on a high priority, but because of the complexity and the advanced nature of its technology, it may take some time before it is mastered and its full utilization is made. In fact, Pakistan already has a long history of designing and producing drones, many of them created by a man named Raja Sabri Khan. His near obsession with unmanned aircraft started at a young age. Khan found himself compelled to do whatever it took to fund his research. I augmented my non-existent earnings by teaching physics and uh, doing fashion photography. So a kind of these things helped Pakistan's first drones to be created. That clear preference for model aircraft over fashion models carried Khan to the top of his industry. In fact, he says he sold his unarmed drones to a company he doesn't want to name in the United States. Khan says the drones flying in American airspace are being used for law enforcement, security, and even search and rescue. But he's adamantly opposed to arming drones because of the risk that innocent people will be harmed. Bombing civilians is unfair something that cannot be condoned. But at the same time, a drone is nothing more than an aircraft without a pilot. And if you use it to fight a war, I think political considerations far outweigh the idealistic side of the issue. There is another side effect to Pakistan's determination to manufacture its own armed drone fleet. 
Talat Masood says China has become a key partner in the development of the Barak drone. And the U.S., which has cooperated with the Pakistani military on joint projects and training for years, should be paying attention. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch, Islamabad. Today's GeoQuiz is about a town in Wyoming, just off Interstate 80. If you're driving that way, it's a good place to stop for gas, but not much else. Just 10 acres or so of farmland and cold, windy winters, too. The one resident of the town, that's right, there's just one, is also the mayor. And he's got plans to pack up and leave, so he put the town up for auction. We'll hear about the highest bidder, a Vietnamese businessman who now owns a piece of the American West, namely the tiny Wyoming town we want you to name. Check back in five minutes for the answer. A hundred years ago, in 1912, this was the state of the art in ship-to-shore communication at sea. Marconi Wireless, Morse code transmitted by the still-fledgling technology of radio. It was the latest in high-tech communication, and the ship with the most advanced and powerful Marconi system was the Titanic. The system was used for official messages between the Titanic's officers and port officials ahead in North America, as well as with other ships on the North Atlantic. But it was also a premium service available to the ship's elite passengers, sort of the marine satellite telephone of its day. The messages were mostly tapped out by young men, Marconi operators they were called, and they were carefully transcribed on both ends of the conversation. That's why, unlike the ship's own logs, the contents of these messages survived the calamity that struck the Titanic. And they're the only real-time record of what happened that night, 100 years ago this weekend. Now, audio artist Suzanne Weber, working with the BBC World Service's Discovery Program, has used some of today's most advanced communications technology, voice simulation software, to translate these Morse code messages into spoken words. Titanic to Kate Brace. To Mrs. Milling. I am very well. Calm weather. Wonderful ship. I am enjoying myself. Jacob... This is Cape Race to Titanic. To Miss Dorothy Gibson, on Titanic. We'll do everything to make you completely happy. Love you Matt Lee. Jules. Titanic to Cape Race. To Jules, New York City. Hardly way to get back. Cable made me awfully happy. Love, Matsy. This is Californian. Ice warning. 42.3 north, 49.9 west. Three large bergs, five mile to southward of us. CQD, CQD, this is Titanic. Mount Temple to Titanic. What is the matter? Cannot read you, but hear my position. For 1.44 north, 50.24 west. Come at once. Have struck a berg. Received. We'll tell Captain. CQD, SOS, from Titanic. Sinking fast, come to our assistance. Cape Race to Californian. SOS, from Titanic, wants immediate assistance. Titanic to Olympic. We are in collision with the berg. Sinking head down. Engine room getting flooded. SOS. CQD, 
SOS. Baltic to Coronia. We're heading for Titanic. But I can't agree to signals. Asian to Cape Race. Have called Titanic. But no reply. He cannot hear me. Carpathia to Olympic. Arrived at Titanic's position at daybreak. We saw ice. 25 miles long. Solid. Saw a quantity of wreckage and number of boats full of lives. We raised about 670 souls. Titanic has sunk. She went down in two hours. Captain, Chief, and all engineers are gone. We have two or three officers aboard, and the second Marconi operator, who had been creeping his way through water for several hours. The last Morse code transmissions via Marconi wireless from the Titanic and some of the ships that came to the rescue of her passengers. They were brought to life by audio artist Suzanne Weber and the Discovery Program from the BBC World Service. We have a link to the entire program at theworld.org. Maybe you saw the headlines last week about a tiny town in Wyoming that went up for auction. Buford, Wyoming, population one. That's the answer to our geo-quiz today. Bidders from over 100 countries took part in the auction, hoping to buy a piece of the American rock. The winning bid, we now know, came from a Vietnamese businessman in Ho Chi Minh City. Pham Din Nguyen paid $900,000 for the right to own Buford, all 10 acres of it. Reporter Rebecca Martinez is with Wyoming Public Radio. Set the scene for us. What does the little town look like? Well, Buford is a really small, tiny little oasis on Route 80. It's square in between Laramie, Wyoming and Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is a pretty traveled road, but otherwise it's completely desolate. Farmland and not much else. So this sole resident there, Don Sammons, was he the one who had the right to put the town up for sale? That's right. Don Sammons owned the property, the 10 acres that he calls the city proper of, of Buford. He was the sole resident there for a bunch of years. He owned the property. He was the unofficial mayor. And so when he decided to retire, he figured it was a good time to see if anybody else wanted their own town. What was the bidding like? Fast and Furious? Did everyone seem eager to buy Buford? There were some bidders there. People drove out from Maine. You got people from Asia here. And a lot of local potential bidders came out as well. People in cowboy hats who'd been through Buford a hundred times. Basically, bidding didn't last super long. It eventually got up to a bid of $900,000. That's up from $100,000 before they finally ended the bidding after six minutes. So tell us about the winning bidder, this Vietnamese man, Pham Dinh Nguyen. What has he said he plans to do with the town? Well, he hasn't spoken with any American media, as far as we know, so he's still a little bit of a mystery. But Pham Din Nguyen is a businessman in Ho Chi Minh City. He runs, you know, trading and distribution company there. He had never been to the United States, and he sees Buford as an opportunity to have a showroom in America and sort of branch into uh, expanding his business here. Now, the current resident and mayor of Buford, Don Sammons, as he said, is going to move soon. He was a U.S. Army radio operator who served in Vietnam, and he says his life has come full circle. 
Did he elaborate what he meant by that? Yeah, he did work as a radio operator in Ho Chi Minh City, which was Saigon at the time. And that's where Mr. Nguyen is from. He says he felt a close connection with him, having been through that time in that city. Simmons says he only had bad memories of his time in Vietnam, bad associations with the country. But now that Nguyen has bought Buford and they've gotten to talk a little bit, they've found some common ground, and that's an appreciation for Buford. And also, they're both practicing Buddhists. So Simmons oh. says he's happy to have happy thoughts to connect with Vietnam as well. After warm and bustling Ho Chi Minh City, did he seem like a fish out of water in uh, Buford? He looked like he was a little flabbergasted by the surroundings. You know, he was really bundled up against the wind. He and his friend were both wearing snow caps and overcoats. I don't know whether they spoke the language. They just looked a little bit bewildered. And <laughs> I, I guess he told Vietnamese media that waves of skin cutting cold blew into his face, which Ouch. I would be fine for. I mean, you'd expect that from anybody who is taking a first time visit to Buford who didn't live in Wyoming. But I imagine that that's, you know, a pretty intense first impression of your new, you know, your new investment, whether it's your new home or someplace you're going to send your employees to go live in. I hope he didn't seem too flabbergasted that he had won the bid. It's like, what did I just spend 900 grand on? <laughs> well, he did have a couple hours to check out the property beforehand. So I hope that he was at least feeling passionate enough to go through with it and, and make it seem worthwhile. Reporter Rebecca Martinez at Wyoming Public Radio. Good to speak with you. Happy to help. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. He's 21 years old and already a household name in his native England. But chances are you aren't yet familiar with singer-songwriter Ed Sheeran, even though he's had a number one album and a hit single in Britain. Not to worry. He's in the U.S. right now to introduce his flavor of folky pop to us Yanks. So, Ed Sheeran, welcome to the studio. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. At 21, you've had some pretty incredible success. You won Best Male Solo Artist and Breakthrough Act at the Brit Awards. That's kind of the British version of the of the Grammys. And you uh, beat out former Oasis member Noel Gallagher and pop sensation Jesse J. What was that like? Were you expecting it? I wasn't really expecting to be nominated, to be honest. I mean, it was um, it was quite a tough year all around. I'm just thankful that... I am male and not female because anyone in the same category as Adele was kind of like shaking in the boots, I think. But yeah, yeah. she kind of monopolized everything. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your music. Uh, you, you've been in the top five in the UK with the song A Team. Let, let's have a listen to that. White lips, pale face, breathing in snowflakes, burnt lungs, our taste. Lights gone, days end, struggling. A-Team, it's a slow, melodic song, but it's not a love song. Uh, what is A-Team about? In England, uh, drugs are put into different classes, so class A is heroin, crack cocaine and cocaine. It's a kind of a little phrase that I made up to say she's in the class A-Team, it means she's on a class A drug, but um, if I was to write that, no one would have given me a look in, I wouldn't have got radio play or... TV or anything, so it was um, it was just a way of me being a bit more clever with it. I understand that you, you were inspired to write this song by encountering a, a homeless woman. I, I did a gig at a shelter, and it was a kind of uh, it was called Crisis at Christmas, and every Christmas day 
get warehouses all around the country and house the homeless for a week over Christmas and they give them shoes, healthcare, food, beds, cinemas and I was the entertainment for one of the days and I spent the day kind of chatting to people and, and getting to know people's stories and um, it just has so happened that uh, I was inspired by one person that I met so I wrote that song. Loose change, banknotes, weary eye, dry throat, cool girl, no phone. bother you that people don't understand that this is about a serious subject about a person you met a, a, a very serious narrative no uh because i don't want to force it on anyone i've made a video for it that's very very clear and the song itself if you look into it is clear so i think i've kind of done everything i can do do, do you find a lot of success through your videos i mean is your world a, a video and a cd world uh, download world too. I guess so, but my but my video world, like I didn't appear in the first three music videos that I did, and they were my three biggest hits. Um, so um, yeah, I mean my my world is more kind of with videos, kind of revolving around doing really interesting ideas that really engage the listener and watcher, rather than kind of just doing a weird video where it's all about me. I have to pick up on that. You said you uh, didn't appear in three videos. One of them is a tune, Lego House, I imagine, yeah. which features uh, your doppelganger, uh, Rupert Grint, who plays uh, Ron Weasley in the Harry Potter yeah. series. You guys, I mean, it's pretty striking. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> like, from the Harry Potter films came out when I was 11. So from the age of 11, I was Ron Weasley in school. So, Oh, my God. <laughs> they came out when you were 11? Yeah, man. You're so young. Yeah, but um, <laughs> the whole thing with that is, like, I didn't want to appear in... The music video i kind of wanted to get someone that, that looked like me and i was kind of looking around seeing if there's anyone and then i was like oh well what about just asking rupert grint i was at a stage as well where you know the music had taken off a little bit i just had you know the number one album in the uk and i thought this is probably the best time to to ask him so he did he was up for it yeah he did it for free as well which is wow which is pretty Sweet. cool yeah he's a really nice guy all right let's hear the tune i'm gonna pick up the pieces and build a Lego house If things go wrong We can knock it down My three words have two meanings But there's one thing on my mind It's all for you mm. And it's dark in a cold December But I got you to keep me warm broken all manger and I keep you sheltered from the storm that's raging on now I'm out of touch I'm out of love I'll pick you up when you're getting down and out of all these things I've done I think I love you better now that's a tune Lego House, which if you look at theworld.org, you can see it's uh, not Ed Sheeran, but a Rupert Grant from the Harry Potter series. You guys really do look a, a do lot alike. Do you know what's like. mad as, as, as well? Um, like a large percent of England for some time, because I hadn't appeared in any music videos and not really been on TV at all, thought that Rupert Grant had finished Harry Potter and started up a music career. So <laughs> that was nice. So aside from the deceptively gentle lyrics that can throw a curveball at the listener, Ed, you've got other surprises. You also do some beatboxing as well. Can I impose on you and get a little beatbox lesson? Is that a possibility? Yeah, yeah. I'm not the best beatboxer and I'm not the worst beatboxer, but I could definitely teach you. So to make a bass drum sound, you 
say the word p, but you take the sound out of it. So it's just yeah, that that kind of thing. And then to make a hi hat sound, you take the word t and take the sound out of it. So it's just t. And then to make a snare sound, you take the word k, you take the sound out of it. So it's k. So then to make a beat, you'd go p t k. So you go. There you go, and and yeah, and I just, sound like I'm just spitting. <laughs> yeah, no, but but you have to obviously like loosen up your mouth a little bit. It takes takes a little bit of practice. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. But I'm not I'm not a beatboxer at all. But I'm happy that you wanted to learn. <laughs> all right, take us out for a good Friday night song. It's a it's a great tune and another funny video which we can see at theworld.org. Ed Sheeran, very nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. And here's your tune, Drunk. I want to be drunk when I wake up On the right side of the wrong bed And never an excuse I made up Tell you the truth that it was Didn't kill me It never made me stronger at all Love will scar your makeup and Lipsticks to me So now I may be laid by I'm sad Ed Sheeran is currently touring the U.S., opening for the band Snow Patrol. Tour dates and videos are at theworld.org. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.